It's been really great to, to see so many people out interacting outside and it's raising a question for us as a society, which is what do we want local streets to be for? Our streets at their best can be a gathering place. They can be a place that connects a community rather than drives it apart. They can be a place where kids can play, but we need to give people the vocabulary and the imagination to see what can be possible. Hi everyone, welcome to the Active Towns podcast. Conversations about creating a culture of activity. I'm John Simmerman, founder of the Active Towns Initiative and your grateful host during this podcast journey. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's always so wonderful to have you along for the ride. In this episode, I'm delighted to welcome Matt Pender and Justin Jones for a detailed conversation about the Dutch concept of Fietstraats or bicycle priority streets. But before we dive into that discussion, please allow me a moment to mention that this episode is being brought to you by the generous contributions of our donors, sponsors, and monthly patrons on our Patreon page. Thank you all so very much for your amazing support. As is frequently the case with most small nonprofits, please know that any donation is greatly appreciated and every little bit adds up. To learn more about how you can make a huge difference in helping me to produce this content, by making a tax-deductible gift, becoming a corporate sponsor, or joining our monthly Patreon program, please head over to our website at activetowns, that's plural, dot O-R-G, and simply click on the donate link in the top right corner of the page. As always, I've included all the appropriate access links in the show notes. One last thing before we get started. If you're enjoying the Active Towns podcast, please subscribe to and rate it on your preferred podcast listening platform. Okay, let's get this conversation about Feetstrats rolling. I am absolutely delighted to have online with me here Matt Pender and Justin Jones. Matt and Justin, how are you? Doing great. Thanks for having us, John. Yeah, really excited to be here. Thank you so much. You are quite welcome. And uh, you both are uh, north of the border, right? You're you're up in uh, in Canada. Yeah, up here in uh, I'm in Collingwood, Ontario, which is a small town, kind of like a little ski town. Um, so we're you know pretty excited for winter coming up. And uh, I'm in Ottawa, Canada's capital, where we have the longest outdoor skating rink in the world. You can look it up. It's called the Rideau Canal, and it's a great winter destination, and you can even socially distance doing it. <laughs> there you go. Well, and and you just, you both kind of mentioned uh, winter and, and all of that. Uh, today is actually November 11th, 2020. Uh, do we have snow on the ground yet? <laughs> we have exactly the opposite. We, we have like a record-setting heat wave here where it's been in the 70s all week. Yeah, it was. Uh, we've. I was. I was outside in shorts and a t-shirt all day yesterday at my uh, at my home office. So uh, I'm not going to complain about that for mid-November here in Ontario. Well, heck with winter. Let's talk about biking then. <laughs> so what we the reason I invited you on to the Active Towns podcast is to talk about feet struts or bicycle streets, and uh, the reason. That uh, I thought to do that is Matt. You and I were connected on LinkedIn, and I saw that you had uh, uh, posted the article that you had written along with Justin about the concept of a feet strut. And uh, yeah, so I, we, we're going to dive into that in a little bit. But before we do that, let's have each of you just you know take like a minute or two and uh, introduce yourself to the audience. So Matt, let's start with you. All right, I am a active transportation professional. I work for a company called Alta Planning and Design, where I specialize in the design of bicycle infrastructure. That's uh, my day job, and I get to design everything from protected intersections to local street bikeways and uh, provide guidance and direction to cities currently all across Canada, but also some in the States as well. And then I uh, maintain a blog on the side called beyondtheautomobile.com. That's where I've been writing for the last almost five years on a variety of topics about the future of transportation. And it's really my my way of going wherever my mind desires and 
the last few weeks have been the focus on bike streets, but in the past or the more recent past, I've talked about how COVID affects transportation and how traffic signals can be improved and uh, a whole variety of topics. Excellent. And give a little bit more uh, background on your, you know, sort of your educational background. How did you come to working for Alta? So I started off as a mechanical engineer, actually, and then I realized that buildings weren't quite as interesting as transportation. And I, at that point, started the blog and got a job at the transit agency in Toronto, Metrolinx, where I studied autonomous vehicles and ride sharing, and I got into marketing. And that was a step in the right direction, but I was still really interested in getting into this niche of bicycle planning. And as I grew my network and I grew my blog and my influence, eventually I became aware of the companies that actually work in this space, Alta being one of them. And I met my now boss, Kate Whitfield, at the Ontario Bike Summit, which Justin actually used to help organize, or still is. And from there, it was just, you know, falling into place into a job. And I've been at Alta for two years and I'm really happy to, uh, to go to work every day. Cool, cool. And why bikes? Why, why were you inspired to try to focus on that? It's just this really awesome form of transportation. I, I mean, I started cycling because I, I just loved it. But as I kind of grew up and traveled a bit, I started to realize that it can be really practical, too. The Netherlands is always, you know, seen as the gold standard. And I had an opportunity to go study there in 2017. And that really just opened my mind up to how much potential we have to transform how we get around our communities by supporting cycling. It's, it gives you three to four times the distance range as walking, which means it can actually be more easily retrofitted into many of our uh, more suburban contexts and inner urban contexts. And it's great for happiness, for the environment, for the economy, for mobility. It's just uh, yeah, it's it's where I've chosen to to focus my career, and I I get a lot of satisfaction out of it. Fantastic, and uh, we'll definitely be talking a little bit about that uh, that whole concept of retrofitting what we have here in North America. Justin, go ahead and uh, give us your background. Yeah, so uh, for the past eight years, I've been working for a nonprofit here in Ontario called uh, the Share the Road Cycling Coalition. Um, so they have been working to make cycling safer and more accessible to Ontarians since 2010. So we've been around for a while and uh, I've been here doing that work and have really loved it. I, uh, you know, I've been fortunate enough to work with over 100 different municipalities in Ontario, helping to introduce, you know, different solutions in terms of of both education, encouragement, and of course, uh, looking at engineering and the physical infrastructure and the design of our public spaces. So I've really been fortunate in that, you know, uh, I found my dream job, uh, essentially, when I joined Share the Road. And I, I really have had a had a fantastic career with Share the Road. It is uh, actually coming to an end. I'm going to be moving on at the end of this year pretty excited about what comes next, but looking forward to continuing to stay active in the uh, active transportation and mobility world. Fantastic. Do you have any uh, fun announcements to make about what does come next? I haven't signed pen to paper yet, so I can't make any uh, I can't make any announcements just yet, but uh, I'm, I'm going to be doing a lot more work on public engagement, um, getting out there and, and listening to people where they are, and also trying to enhance uh, people's imagination about what their public space can be. I think that's a really important thing for us to do in this field is to provide people the opportunity to, uh, to experience something that they haven't seen before. And I think that that's where I'm excited to go next. Fantastic. Well, uh, definitely keep me updated with that because when it is time for uh, that announcement to take place, I'll make sure that we include it in the show notes so that people can, you know, link over to your next adventure and career path and, and all that good stuff. So same question to you uh, as as I had for Matt there. And, and that is, uh, you know, why bikes? How did, how did you find your way into focusing in on this? You know, my origin story when it comes to cycling is is a weird one. Um, I grew up in a small town in Alberta, which is a, a province here in Canada. And, you know, I grew up driving 
everywhere. I was one of those people that as soon as I was able to get my driver's license, I did. And, you know, as soon as I had that driver's license, nothing else mattered but the car. Uh, It was the way we got to and from school. It was the way we got to and from the local corner store, which I've measured on Google Maps. It's a grand total of 300 meters from my high school. And we would drive that every day. Um, so that's the context in which I grew up. And then I moved to, uh, to Toronto to pursue my master's degree. And, you know, the, uh, the great big 1984 Chrysler fifth Avenue that I had wouldn't fit in the parking spot in my apartment complex. So I left it behind in Alberta. Um, but, uh, I started walking and taking transit more in Toronto and, you know, one day I just decided that I got, I got sick of waiting for transit basically. And I decided to try taking a bike. And so at age 23, having not been on a bike since I was in grade school, I went out, I bought a bike and I started riding again and it just blew the doors of the city wide open for me. Uh, It exposed me to so many different neighborhoods and areas that I hadn't seen before. It made me a local and a regular at places that were way outside my walks, my little walk zone. And uh, it just introduced a whole other way of, of seeing and being and moving through a city. So I, I totally fell in love with it. And, you know, since then, I've moved to, uh, to the smaller community of, of Collingwood. And, you know, now I look at the bike as, as a way of connecting me with my community. It's a way to connect with my daughter when we ride to school every morning. It's a way to connect with the people in town. You know, I see people and we wave to one another. And I always say I've, I can, I've made some of the most significant friends in my life uh, from the saddle of my bike. But I can't tell you a single friend that I've ever made from behind the windshield of my car. So it really does connect me to my community. It centers me uh, and it, it makes me a part of my community in a way that nothing else can. Yeah. Matt. I should I should add Justin and maybe you don't even know this but the first time that I met Justin was as a student at McMaster University in Hamilton just starting to become interested in cycling advocacy and Justin was presenting as a community champion because he had just succeeded in winning over the community support for Hamilton's first bidirectional protected bike lane what was the, the campaign was called? Yes, we can in. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that, that's such a lasting legacy to leave Justin. And that was my, our first interaction years ago at this point. Yeah. I remember, um, that, yeah, I was going to say that Matt and I go way back all the way to our Hamilton days and, uh, you know, we've, we've been kind of circling around one another ever since. And this is really our first opportunity to, to really work together on something. And it's been a lot of fun to have that interaction with Matt and to bring our different perspectives to these, uh, this series of blog posts. Because we don't agree on everything. And that's it more <laughs> interesting. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, Hey, let's, let's tee it up. Let's talk a little bit about this project uh, that the two of you have been working on. And again, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Matt, you had uh, posted it out on your your LinkedIn page, and so that caught my my attention. You had me at Feetstrot, so t- take it from there. T- tell talk a little bit about the project and how the two of you are partnering and and putting this out there. So the the project started with my curiosity about the Feetstrot. I've I've rode enough of them in the Netherlands to know that they're a very interesting and unique concept, and I. St- started off with just a post to summarize what the Dutch Crow Manual says about feet struts. That's their leading bicycle facility design manual. And at that point, this wasn't even going to be a series or a continuation at all. It was just, what is a feet strut at its core? And that's what I tried to answer with the first post. And that, that was a really interesting exploratory mission because what it really is, it's very different from a bike lane or a cycle track or a protected intersection. It's not a physical piece of measurable infrastructure. You can't look at it and say that is a feet strut. It is a desired outcome. Uh, so essentially a feet strut is a street where bicycles are the priority user and uh, people riding bicycles are at the top of that road user hierarchy. So you can't just look at a street and see if it's a feet strut. You have to actually observe it and how the users are interacting and who is you know, top of the top of the hierarchy. So that, that post was really interesting. And um, 
I decided I wanted to continue that and see, can this concept be applied in North America and has it been successfully? And Justin and I had already engaged a little bit on his community and Justin was interested in pushing for a neighborhood bikeway there. So I naturally reached out and asked if he wanted to be a part of this exploratory series. And he was, of course, 100% in. And we have so far dissected uh, the NACTO guidance as it pertains to bicycle streets, Portland's broad, massive network of um, neighborhood greenways, and most recently, just today, Toronto's Shaw Street bikeway. And uh, maybe you want to add a little bit to that, Justin? Yeah, I think um, I was really excited when Matt reached out to me. I've been banging the drum of neighborhood greenways, bicycle boulevards, quiet streets, whatever you want to call them, looking at the bicycle street in the North American context for a long time here. Uh, You know, I think that the first uh, presentation file I have referencing it in my archives dates back to 2013. So that would have been my second year with Share the Road, and I was already banging that drum. Uh, working towards getting those kind of bicycle streets more considered within the Ontario and North American context. So it's been really fun to to look at how they've been implemented in different communities and different contexts and to compare what the outcomes, just like Matt said, you know, what the outcomes are looking like as the infrastructure starts to change and modernize. Yeah. And uh, you had mentioned the the Crow Manual in there. And so I'm going to go ahead and read out uh, what the the Crow Manual defines as a a feet strut or a bicycle street. And in in quotations, a residential road for motorized traffic that forms part of the main cycle network and which is identifiable as a bicycle street due to its design and layout, but has a limited volume of car traffic on it and that car traffic is subordinate to bicycle traffic. So there's some key features to that. And specifically, we're not talking about just slapping down sharrows into a lane. Who wants to take that? <laughs> yeah, you I go think, first, Justin. <laughs> sure. I think that the biggest thing about a bicycle street or about a neighborhood greenway or and however you want to call them is that they start to change the behavior and the approach to how public space is prioritized. Because I think to date in North America, the entire model of transportation planning has assumed that cars and vehicle traffic has unfettered access to every single piece of asphalt. So every residential street, every neighborhood street, every collector, the first thing that's designed in is access for cars. And so when you start to look at just how dominant the movement of automobiles is through our communities, um, it's no wonder that when you try and introduce traffic calming or you try and introduce sharrows on a residential street, people still don't feel safe riding because the behavior of the people in the motor vehicles doesn't lend itself to a a feeling of all ages and abilities mobility for people on bikes. So I think that, um, you know, to go back to the, the Dutch design manual, I think that that subordination and the idea that cars aren't the primary user of this street and that the people who live there, the people who walk there, the people who bike along that corridor, those are the primary users of that street. That's a complete mindset shift that we need to be able to embrace here in North America. And I think we, we really rounded it out with the, uh, the Toronto example with Shaw street, because that's a bicycle street, but it certainly isn't a bicycle street in the way that the Dutch bicycle street would be, uh, defined because they do have to have a lot more, I would say almost heavy handed infrastructure, uh, on that street to reinforce those traffic behaviors. Yeah, Matt. And it's, it was really the the concept of motorists being subordinate that drew me in and to Justin's comments, any, any place in North America where a cyclist is riding in mixed traffic with motor vehicles, the bicyclist is subordinate to the motor vehicle. You are expected to ride at the side of the road. Often it's even ingrained in the law that you are riding over at the side of the road to make it easy for motorists to pass you. So it was very fascinating to see a concept that actually goes against that grain and tries to reverse it. And it is a lot of work to design a street that really succeeds in that. 
And even the Dutch have had mixed success with Fietstraats. Uh, some have worked really well, some have not. There's a lot of good lessons learned there. But what it really comes down to is creating the context where bicycles can be the dominant or cyclists can be the dominant street user. The top ones, of course, are volume management. You really need to make sure that there is a very low volume of motor vehicles using that street, especially relative to the traffic of bicycles. And then you need to make sure that speed is heavily, heavily controlled. The, the Dutch Crow Manual says no more than 30 kilometers an hour. Um, NACTO in North America allows up to 40, but it's well below our you know, default setting of a 50 kilometer an hour or 30 mile an hour residential street here in Canada and the U.S. Yeah. And earlier you had mentioned that when you look at a feet strut, it may not be completely obvious that it's, you know, it it's a different environment, except for there, there are some visual cues that, you know, sort of clue you in. And to, to your point, Justin, you, you had mentioned, you know, the unfettered access of, of the motor vehicles. And, and it's not just unfettered access. It's also that mindset, as you had mentioned, of priority of movement and being able to sort of drive at, at your pleasure in terms of, you know, how fast and, and how aggressive and things of that nature. So one of the key things visually that a, a Dutch Fietstraat does feature is the textures of, of the roadway. It's mo more than likely the entire roadway has been uh, done in the red asphalt and the signs, the, the ubiquitous signs of a Fietstraat auto to gast, which is the motor vehicle is the guest. And there's, a, there's the visual of the, the cyclist in front and the motor vehicle patiently behind, waiting behind. And so it's a very interesting you know, construct and because, you, and you touched upon it just in there, is that there is a great deal of behavior change that has to take place in, North, in a North American context to make that happen. Now, in one of your uh, articles that you did, you, you profiled uh, Portland and Portland has been working on the bicycle boulevards concept and facility for some time, and and they really use filtering, uh, you know, as a as a mechanism to to divert motor vehicle traffic off of those streets, and it's primarily in their residential areas. Uh, talk a little bit more about some of the things that you learned about the Portland context since they probably have the most experience in North America. So, so Portland's an example of a city that has really gone all in on the Bicycle Boulevard. They have slowly built out their network over the years, and now they have over 70 miles of Bicycle Boulevard spanning the city. Many of them carry thousands of cyclists a day. By, by all measures, it is a successful network with good traffic diversion and good slow speeds. And from a behavioral perspective, many of them do actually have, you know, bicycle dominance. Motorists are passing safely, if if at all. And uh, that's been really successful in making Portland a leader in Canada and the U.S. in terms of its bike usage. It quickly reached, you know, 6 or 7% mode share. But what we found in our post is that that has ultimately led to kind of a ceiling of potential you know, there's there's only so much you can achieve by making residential streets really bikeable. Eventually, you need to make it bikeable to reach all destinations in the city, many of which are on busier main streets and require different solutions. So Portland, uh, you know, remarkable example of successful neighborhood greenways, but uh, a lesson for, for other cities that, you know, it, it has to be amongst a mix of solutions. And maybe, Justin, you want to talk a bit more about that. Yeah, I, th I think that Portland's success with the neighborhood greenways has unfortunately had the trailing effect of having less success when it comes to protected bike lanes in Portland. Um, and so when we look at the role of a neighborhood greenway or of a feedstraat in the network, I think that it's important to emphasize 
that these have to be one tool in your toolbox. They can't be the only thing that you are using to build an all ages and ability cycling network. For the same reason that just building a bunch of multi-use trails isn't going to create a culture of cycling, just building a bunch of neighborhood bikeways or feet strut isn't going to get to those larger swaths of the population that are the interested but concerned riders. And I think that the other thing that happens with some of these infrastructure investments is that they can have the impact of making people on bikes slightly invisible. Um, when you move people off of those major corridors, when you don't provide the space on your high streets um, where people are going to access their destinations, where a lot of people are also driving or taking transit or, or shopping and experiencing, um, and you've moved people on their bikes over to just the quiet streets and you keep them over there, um, it does have the effect of making it seem like there's not as many people on bikes as there are. And so I think that it's important for communities to recognize that if you want to grow a culture of cycling, it's also about making cycling visible and making it seen to people that aren't riding bikes because these neighborhood bikeways are great for the people who live along them. They see people, thousands of people on bikes streaming by their homes every single day. But for the business owners two blocks over, who are thinking about losing a couple of parking spaces in front of their shop and to make way for a protected bike lane, they don't see those same people on bikes riding past their store. And so they don't necessarily see the demand nor the need for it. And so they may not become as involved in, in pushing for it. Yeah, it's a good, good point. And even in Portland, uh, you know, they have the challenge of, uh, some of their more far-flung suburbs, and and uh, one that that I've been covering uh, quite extensively over the last three years is out in the the east side, the Gateway District area, and it's, it's really far out there and uh, out by the airport, and it's an environment where they're having to really transform an auto-centric and auto-dominated environment much more so than their uh, close-in first-ring suburbs or their downtown area. And so it's it's more analogous to what the rest of North America is dealing with from a suburban context and an auto-centric sort of design. And uh, they're having to do exactly what you're talking about, Justin, is they're having to make sure that they have protected and separated infrastructure for the main streets, the main drags, as well as supplementing with the neighborhood greenways uh, through the residential areas. And importantly, having those key connectors to the meaningful destinations, the, the parks and the, uh, the shopping districts and things of that nature. And, uh, and, and it's one of the biggest challenges. One of the stats that I that I love and I mentioned earlier is the fact that the the Dutch network, the majority of the Dutch network, is in fact you know not the protected, uh, separated infrastructure. It's this concept of of sharing some of the space. Where I think I want to go with the the Portland example, since again they've been doing this for as long as they have. What can other cities sort of learn from? their experience. And maybe that brings us to the Shaw example. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I think it, it really goes back to the, the Crow manual definition of a bicycle street, which is that it forms a part of the main cycle network. So right at the beginning, when cities are planning their cities and communities are planning their bicycle networks, this can be a very helpful and strategic tool for closing certain gaps in that network. And Shaw Street is a perfect example of this. Toronto has uh, a handful of north-south streets in its west end, many of which, well, basically none, have uh, bicycle infrastructure and spaces really tight on a lot of them. So Shaw was a natural choice for providing some north-south continuity for, for cyclists. And it intersects many east-west really popular cycling routes. And because of that strategic role in the network of that of Shaw Street, it is a true bicycle street. There are over 3,000 people who bike on that street every day and bikes outnumber cars by two and a half times. It's just making sure that the bicycle street or whatever you want to call it is a part of the network and a strategic part of the network, but not 
the only <laughs> the only part of the network. As, as as previously said, you need to get people able to cycle to those major destinations that are often on busy streets. I think one of the things that Portland did in being the trailblazer when it comes to neighborhood greenways is show people that this is possible in a North American context. So much of the NACTO guidance is based on Portland's experience. And I think that a lot of the lessons that can be learned from Portland is just how politically expedient some of these potential infrastructure solutions can be. And so for a community that is looking at trying to fill some gaps in their network in the short term, if they want to build out some all ages and abilities infrastructure, and they're worried about the potential of things like parking loss or residents losing some of the frontage on their homes, what Portland has shown is that those trade-offs don't necessarily have to be presented, that you can, in fact, take an 11-meter right-of-way and maintain residential parking on both sides of that corridor, add some traffic filtering, add some traffic calming elements, add the uh, the elements that are going to allow people on bikes and people walking to move through that space easily, quickly, and conveniently, and that you can build that all ages and abilities infrastructure using your existing assets in such a way that isn't going to cause the the bike lash that we see when you talk about like protected bike lanes in your downtown core. Because what you're talking about here is fundamentally, you're talking to those people who live on that corridor, on that street, and you're saying, you are going to still have access to your home. You're still going to have access to your driveway. You're still going to have the ability to park on the road if you've had the ability to park on that road before. The only thing that's going to change is that you will have fewer cut-through vehicles driving by your house. And you will probably have more people on bikes and more people walking in front of your house. That is the change that you will see. And that's much more politically expedient to move forward in neighborhoods than to try and talk about, you know, losing something. You're not losing anything when we're introducing these kinds of solutions. When we return after this quick break, we talk about NACTO's bicycle street guidance, the imperative for cities to activate their connected residential grids, and the evolving relationship community members are having to their streets during the pandemic. But first, please consider helping me grow our podcast audience and this movement to create more activity-promoting places by telling a friend or two. Thank you. Okay, let's get back to our discussion with Matt and Justin. looking at the photo from your your article here and uh, it it highlights and illustrates the centerpiece of the reconfiguration of Shaw Street and that's the filtering aspect of the managed access and so you're not getting that cut through traffic the the motor vehicle traffic is being diverted over and again as you had mentioned that's something that Portland had had really focused on. Uh, you had also mentioned, you know, NACTO and the NACTO guidance. Um, so the eight design elements in the, the Bicycle Boulevard as defined by NACTO are, number one, the route planning, uh, number two, signs and pavement markings, make sure they're easy, uh, easy to find and follow, speed management, you we had talked about that volume management. We had talked about that, uh, the minor street crossings and the major street crossings, which is so cool, you know, critical in dealing with, well, how do you get, you know, across these major sort of arterials that you come across and then the offset crossings, uh, so that there's clear and safe navigation through there. And then the green infrastructure enhancing the, the environment. And I think one of the, the most pleasurable things, that I notice about the feet struts and the uh, neighborhood greenways and the bicycle bull boulevards that I've been profiling across the, the country is that they are a much more pleasant, high comfort environment versus even being in a protected, separated infrastructure on a main road. I'm breathing in less exhaust, there's less noise, there's more tree coverage, uh, so there's all of these that that you know enhancement in terms of quality of life and quality of environment that are 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 critical. 
And one of the reasons why I just love the fact that uh, we're having this discussion and uh, more cities are starting to consider not only than all ages and abilities protected and separated, but they're also getting serious about, you know, activating more of the uh, the gridded network, if they happen to have a gridded network, to be able to leverage a, uh, a you know a bicycle boulevard concept. Uh, any thoughts that you have, uh, sort of along those lines, Matt? Yeah, Justin and I were actually just talking about this earlier today uh, about the you know the quality of public realm that comes with the bicycle boulevard, and it, it's essentially tied to not having more bikes, but having less cars on your street and having lower traffic and. Uh, we were trying to distinguish what's a slow street versus what's a bicycle boulevard. And it really comes down to the fact that in, in the Netherlands, every street is a slow street. Every street is designed for 30 kilometers an hour for local traffic only. And uh, that is where that amazing quality public realm comes from. The bicycle street basically takes that already low motor vehicle volume and speed and then adds a high volume of bicycles through there. So your, your bicycle boulevard is, is taking the quiet street concept, but then making it an arterial for bicycles because we know that we can push a high volume of bicycles through a street without it really causing any traffic problems, any noise problems, any congestion problems. They, you, know, you can get thousands of bikes a day just cruising along, not uh, going completely unnoticed, essentially. Yeah, I think this has been one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot as we've been going through this series. And it's not even the, I mean, when when you're talking about knowledge and abilities piece of infrastructure on a, on a larger road, uh, obviously, you know, you're going to be thinking about a place that has a lot more asphalt, that has a lot more cars, that has a lot fewer aspects of of greenery of natural landscape of you know of, of kind of visual interest and so it does create a situation where it's it's comfortable but it's still stressful in a way because there's still that proximity to traffic whereas on a really great neighborhood greenway i think what you introduce is you introduce something that's almost unheard of in north america and that's a piece of infrastructure where there is really a lack of or an absence of cars. And not only an absence of cars, but the absence of the threat of cars. And I, I think a lot about that because the, the street that I live on here in Collingwood is a very small, very quiet little street. Uh, I mean, if, if we see 300 vehicles a day go by my house, I would be shocked. But at the same time, it's just the threat of any one of those 300 vehicles a day coming by at any given moment at a speed that is far too high to let my daughters play out in my front yard, to let them go out on their bike onto that roadway or onto their little scooter and go for a little boot around in our neighborhood without me following them super close behind. Because at any given moment, a car could come screaming down that street at a fully legal 50 kilometers an hour, which is far too fast to be going when there are tiny humans, when there are people with mobility issues, when there are seniors, when there are people with disabilities, when there are people on bikes, just when there are people around. And I think that that is what we have the potential to look at when we're talking about bringing the bicycle street into the North American context is showing people what is possible when our public space is not completely dominated by the threat of cars every single minute of every single day. Yeah. And you, know, you, you just hit it on the head there in the absence of the threat of the cars. And that brings us right back around to that concept. Uh, one of the key uh, features, the eight features in NACTO's guidance there of speed management do what you can. And for those uh, listening in who might be uh, metrically challenged, so when we're talking about 30 kilometers per hour, we're, we're really talking about 17 miles per hour. So just round that down. We'll, we'll just call it 15. So being on a 15 mile per hour street where you're looking at much, much less lethal speeds when you put it in the context of like a vision zero context, uh, it's much different than that 50 kilometer per hour, that 30 mile per hour, let alone <laughs> 
40 and 45 miles per hour, which we see in so many of our North American cities, it makes a huge difference, you know, from that threat perspective that you're talking about, Justin. So being, and, and that's where those managed access points and those filtering, you know, aspects, you know, help to facilitate uh, less of the cut through traffic, less of the, you know, the folks, you know, trying to go way faster than they should on a, what should be a quiet residential street. Now, one of the things that uh, I've been, you know, talking about a lot, you know, since COVID is the fact that uh, since the lockdown, we've seen more and more activity out in our residential streets. And so, and in fact, in my neighborhood here in, in South Austin, Texas, uh, we have no sidewalks. And so the streets are shared space all the time. And now with, uh, you know, a fivefold, tenfold increase in the number of people walking and biking out on the streets, we're seeing a behavior change and shift uh, in terms of motor vehicle traffic and the prevailing speeds. What are you guys seeing in your neighborhoods? You want to go first, Justin? No, you go for it. You're you're in the big city. You've got probably more fun stories to share than I do up here in uh, little old Collingwood. Yeah, I, I've definitely noticed the massive increase in spending time outside on your own street in your own community, and it's been really great to to see so many people out interacting outside, and it's raising a question for us as a society, which is what do we want local streets to be for? Do we want them to be an extension of our front yard, a place where the community can meet and chat and mingle? Because in order to have that great benefit for children to be able to play and all this to happen, uh, speed need speed and volume need to be managed on our local streets if we want to make them those great places to be. Uh, it's it's you, you can't have both. And uh, I, I think people are getting a taste of what it looks like to have the, an extension of your community on your public street. And I hope more people are thinking that they'd like to keep that long term. Yeah, I think up here in, in Collingwood, you know, we're really fortunate. We've got an amazing network of multi-use trails up here. And so while our streets have not been as full of people walking and cycling as a, as a larger community like Ottawa or Austin, um, our trails have just been completely overrun. They've been just jam-packed uh, every time I'm out on them. I'm shocked at the number of people that are riding their bike, that are walking, that are out with their dogs or their kids or their grandparents, um, because that's the only place that you can see them is in an outdoor setting. So I've been really excited to see the number of people that are accessing the amenities in town and those people have to get to those trails somehow and i think that that's the element for a community like mine with a really mature network of trails is to now start thinking about okay it shouldn't be incumbent upon people to get in their car and drive to a trailhead if they want to go out and experience the outdoors they should be able to walk out their front door especially in a town like collingwood where you are you are literally never more than 400 meters away from a trail in this town. It is, it is impossible to find a spot that you're more than 400 meters away from a trail. And so we have incredible access, but people still feel the need to drive to get to the trails because they don't feel comfortable walking or cycling along the parts of their network that should be the ones that are most comfortable and convenient for them. Yeah. And those are very modest distances. You know, when you had talked earlier, you had mentioned 300 meters in your original community and you were, you know, and people were routinely driving, you know, just to go a short distance to the corner store and 400 meters to get to a trailhead. So it sounds like you both are hopeful that this, you know, enhanced awareness of what the streetscape can be for will help pave the way for additional uh, investments in this type of all ages and abilities infrastructure when it's actual infrastructure when it's slight little tweaks because when you really think of it at the end of the day a feet strut as you had mentioned and started at, at the very beginning matt in, in saying it's it's not this massive massive infrastructure investment it can be done quite affordably and on the cheap. 
And, and that's kind of what we've been seeing in the Corona era is a pop-up infrastructure of slow streets and healthy streets and, and shared spaces and, and traffic calming. So we're, we're hopeful that this is going to be happening. So for each of you, any final thoughts that, uh, that we haven't yet covered, but you think that we really need to, to address? I think that the one thing that we really do need to center in this conversation is the idea that how these types of infrastructure have been distributed has been fundamentally unequal. Much like all of our active transportation infrastructure, we are seeing these proliferate in the areas that are predominantly white, that have higher than average income and socioeconomic status, uh, and where they're largely being built in the service of, of white comfort. They're being built in the service of people being able to walk or bike for recreation, while the people who we deem essential, who work at our grocery stores, who work at our hospitals, who work at our long-term care centers, they are still having to get on buses or figure out how to get a car. And I think that it is so important that as we move forward with more discussions about how we create spaces for everyone in our cities, that we are ensuring that these types of facilities are reaching the communities that need it most, that are reaching the types of destinations that need it most. And uh, to date, I think that if I'm being completely candid, I think that we've failed on that in North America. And I think that we really need to double down on introducing these types of, of infrastructure treatments in the places where people are walking or biking or taking transit, not because of some environmental choice or because they're looking for recreation, but because they have to. And so if we're going to be investing in more bicycle streets, more quiet streets, um, they need to be centered on where people are are being forced to go to their job because we've deemed them essential. And that hasn't happened yet, to my mind, in most places in North America. And I think that it's extremely important that we center their lived experience as we move forward with this movement. Yeah, good point. And uh, I'll reference folks to uh, my previous episode that I had with Charles Brown. He's a, a international expert in talking about transportation and in underserved communities and in uh, you know communities of color that have been disinvested in for for many many decades. And to your point. Uh, as we learned from the Oakland experience, uh, we can't just, you know, plow forward with a whole bunch of already ready baked plans uh, in these disinvested environments and, and communities. We need to be able to do so in such a way that we're really listening to that community, engaging with the, those uh, those communities. They know best what is going to be appropriate, you know, for their environment. And in the case of of Oakland, uh, they sort of stubbed their toe at first, but then you know they they really started listening to the community, and uh, and and the the result has been a, a very very positive, uplifting story with the com community engagement. Matt, final thoughts. Uh, yeah, I really appreciate you saying that, Justin. And I, I just want to add a little bit to that to say it's really important for the people who are privileged and in power to raise this at opportunities that you get. You know, it, many people who are listening to this episode are going to go to a community consultation sometime in the next few months. Just ask the question, how was equity considered in this project? Did you consider disadvantaged communities or equity-seeking communities? And, uh, you know, from my experience, I found that Sometimes that question just doesn't get asked and you're definitely not going to get an answer to that question if it doesn't get asked. And the more the more you do ask that question, the more pressure you put on municipal governments and other governments to actually think about that in the process. My closing thought will be an extension of that, which is that we can get these slow streets and these, these bicycle streets at zero cost. Every year, municipalities are building new local streets, they're reconstructing local streets, and they're repaving local streets. Every time one of those projects happens is an opportunity to build that street differently or build it back differently. The, the Netherlands is a perfect example of that. They design every street for 30 kilometers an hour right from the beginning so that you don't build this giant wide local street that um, ends up having no parked cars on it and then creates all these speeding challenges down the road. You anticipate that and you design it for those locals from the for those slow speeds right from the beginning. 
My, uh, my, the, the municipality I live in, the city of Ottawa, has passed a policy to design all local streets to 30 kilometers an hour. They haven't released what that looks like yet, but it's it's a really important and you know groundbreaking policy that I think has been passed. And I would love to see 30 kilometers an hour be the default design speed for all residential streets going forward. And then we could have all this for free. Fantastic. For somebody who's been listening into this, they're super stoked and excited to make a difference in their community. What little short little snippet pearl of advice would you have for that person who'd, who'd like to make a difference in their community? Justin, we'll start with you. Give people every opportunity you can to envision their public space differently. We have all grown up experiencing our streets, which are in most cases, the most significant public space asset that we have in our municipality as serving a single purpose. And that purpose is to move cars. Our streets at their best can be a gathering place. They can be a place that connects a community rather than drives it apart. They can be a place where kids can play, but we need to give people the vocabulary and the imagination to see what can be possible. So that could involve you taking a couple sawhorses, spray painting them neon orange, putting them out and hanging a sign that says quiet street on them and giving people an opportunity to just see what it feels like, what it looks like when your streets operate differently. And that's the thing that I would encourage people to do is, is plant that seed of imagination in your community and see what grows. Beautiful. Matt. My final message is thank you. Thank you to the people who do advocate in their communities because my industry and my job would not exist if it wasn't for you. Uh, my job exists because people decided they wanted change in their communities. They wanted communities to be more bicycle and walking friendly. That resident demand resulted in politicians taking notice of this issue and telling cities to hire staff. Those cities hired staff and then needed expertise. And uh, now I'm employed as a consultant doing my dream job. So as an advocate, your job is so important and it is so meaningful. And I know that it can be very, uh, it can always feel like an uphill battle as an advocate because you, you lose more battles than you win. And I just want to say look, thank you for what you do. Celebrate the wins that you do get and, uh, you know, keep, keep, keep fighting because that's how we're getting where we are. Yeah, that's so well said. And, and, you know, A, the gratitude towards the efforts, you know, for, for, you know, those individuals out there in the community, just as community members, as well as uh, folks like Justin working in the nonprofit uh, arena, trying to push through these things, because whenever you threaten the status quo, there's going to be resistance and there's going to be that NIMBY sort of knee-jerk reaction of no, 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 don't change our streets, not in my backyard, not in my front yard. So gentlemen, thank you so very much. It's been an absolute pleasure having you here on the Active Towns podcast. Thanks, John. Thanks so much. Thank you also very much for listening to this episode. I certainly hope you enjoyed this in-depth discussion with Matt Pender and Justin Jones. Be sure to access the suite of Bicycle Priority Street articles they've published in the show notes to this episode. A couple of quick reminders before we part ways. Please don't hesitate to drop me a line if you have any suggested topics or guests, questions, or if you happen to have any leads on potential podcast sponsors. My email is john, that's J-O-H-N, at activetowns, that's plural, dot O-R-G. It's always wonderful to hear from y'all. And as a final reminder, please consider making a financial contribution to Active Towns so I can keep bringing you this content. I've made doing so super easy, and I do have some wonderful thank you gifts. Just go to activetowns.org and click on the blue donate link in the top right corner of the page. Thank you. Well, that's all for episode number 49. So until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. Thank you.